0: Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a No Film School podcast. I'm Liz Nord, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School.
1: And I'm John Fusco, Producer at No Film School.
0: It is August 4th, 2016, and on this week's show, we chat about Vice's new series, Academy Award-winning screenwriter Mark Bowles' First Amendment Battles, the rise of 8K Broadcasting, and as always, we'll cover more news you can use about gear, upcoming deadlines, new film releases, and Ask No Film School. (music) We're coming to you, as always, from downtown Brooklyn, New York, home of No Film School. And we're here to bring you everything you might have missed while you were busy making films. Sometimes at the top of the show, we like to talk about things that are going on here at No Film School. And uh, I've been paying attention, special attention lately, and noticed that we really have put up some very useful and particularly excellent posts, if I do say so myself. I wanted to mention a few of them because um, I think they're of particular use to you, as filmmakers, one of them actually is just fun. Everybody's been talking about this show Stranger Things on Netflix, and we're gonna be speaking about Netflix's other acquisitions later in the show. Um, one of our writers, Justin, did a post about Stranger Things and how basically it harnesses the power of nostalgia, which sent me down this whole road of nostalgia and led me to discovering that next week marks the 30th anniversary of the theatrical release of one of my all-time favorite movies, Stand By Me. I don't know if you guys have seen it, but, oh, it's so good. Have you seen it? Yeah,
1: of course. While we're on the subject of Stranger Things and this sort of nostalgic genre um, that tries to capture, like, you know, Steven Spielberg's Amblin vibes and uh, throws back to very particular moments in Spielberg's films, like, Stranger Things opens with the group of kids playing Dungeons and Dragons, and that's exactly how, well, not exactly how E.T. starts, but that's uh, what the group of kids are doing when we first see them in E.T. I actually wrote a post a few months ago about how to make a successful nostalgic film or how to make a successful teen film i guess and
0: using nostalgia
1: yeah using nostalgia and one of the um big takeaways i got from that was a successful sort of endeavor in that genre is marked by the creators not making characters that are sort of nostalgic longings of their own childhood but actual characters that are living through their childhood as the plot unfolds And I think that can be seen in Stranger Things. At first, I was a little bit skeptical about it. And I think, like, a perfect example of that sort of. Writers looking back at their own childhood and mo- bemoaning their youth, sort of, or bemoaning moments. their lost youth. Yeah, their lost youth is like little things, like the you have to spit in your hand before you high five, kind of stuff, and then going on to talk about why they do that sort of thing.
0: It can come off as pretty corny.
1: Yeah, exactly. Kids don't really do that, but I guess it. When I was having this conversation with a friend, they were like, "Oh, but they were explaining that that's what kids do. It's this weird experimental." child who's been tested on and hasn't had a normal childhood and doesn't understand what childhood is so it succeeds i guess in that in that right and then as the series went on i'm not going to say any spoilers but i got to like it a lot more and i definitely recommend it but one more thing very quickly my brother and i have been developing an idea for a feature for the past year and a half that is a direct reflection of stranger things and so, it's kind of a bummer.
0: Well, hopefully, the popularity of Stranger Things will, you know, right. up the chances of your script getting picked up.
1: That's that's what I hoped. But, okay, very briefly, I'll just say the plot just so I can make it known. It's supposed to be a throwback to Amblin movies. And it's about two brothers. One of the younger brothers wishes to become invisible on his birthday He's like three. He's like five years old, I think. And this is something that my brother actually did when he was a kid. And then he actually becomes invisible. So the older brother, who is sort of a loser in his middle school setting, has to. And that's you? No, that's not me. I was oh. never. I was president of my middle school, so I was, <laughs> oh, um, well. yeah. So uh, that older brother has to make a group of friends, who then go out and have to find where their younger brother is somewhere in this invisible realm. So it's like almost word for word what's going on in Stranger Things, but anyways.
0: But you guys started it first. Yeah, I guess so. Well, folks, y'all heard it here. Nobody steal John's idea. And for all of our many, many network executive and studio executive listeners, please come find John Fusco and make his film.
1: Yeah. Well, it hasn't been written, but (laughs) (laughs) that's the idea. So...
0: Okay, this segment is turning into Stranger Things. Um, Anyway, back to no film school, those posts, those really, really good posts. A couple of them that you just might find very useful are one about six ways to avoid an NC-17 rating. So this post goes into depth about how the Motion Picture Association of America chooses their ratings and the somewhat sort of arbitrary um, parameters they use and what you can do if you want to get a more commercially viable R on your racy film than an NC-17. And also one that we got tons of positive feedback on is a, a list of 99 free filmmaking templates, each one that you can download for every part of the production process from scripting to all kinds of legal stuff to location releases and I haven't seen anything like this anywhere on the web where there's one big compilation of basically every filmmaking form you'll ever need. So I recommend checking it out if you're involved in any level of production on your film.
1: Yeah, it's awesome. It really, I mean, I'm very excited that we have it because I'm like hopefully going to start production on something soon, but I have no idea where to begin and this at least like gives you a head start on what you actually like need to know or what you might need to have in order to start production on your film without a producer. So if you get a producer, you can make your own checklist of what you need, and you can have the documents ready to go already for them.
0: That's a good point. Even by by looking over the list, you, you think of things that you might not have thought about before, like, oh, wow, I need to get a, a release for whatever equipment so it's it's really useful moving on to news outside of no film school vice is debuting a new nightly news show on hbo the night of the first u.s presidential debate on september 26th it's going to be a half hour nightly series called vice news tonight as many of you probably know this is going to be vice's second hbo show the first one was a, a news magazine show just called vice it's notable because not only was Vice's video division started and run by indie filmmakers – of course, everyone loves Spike Jones, um, but they also employed or have employed or contracted or bought content from basically every indie filmmaker we know in New York, myself included – and we talk in just about every episode of this show about how important it is for filmmakers to be aware of current events, then I, for one, am looking forward to this show as an alternative to mainstream news because I'm guessing it's going to have high production values but kind of an indie sensibility. John, do you have any favorite Vice shows?
1: Uh, well, it's kind of odd that I've been asked about Vice so much in the very brief time that I've been working here, but it just shows sort of how relevant it is, I guess, to today's scene. Um, I have come out with a few articles, actually, that they don't exactly knock Vice, but they take sort of a, uh, I'd say, like a less than positive view on what Vice has done to certain scenes in New York City. and art scenes in general, and sort of their uh,
0: co-opting.
1: Can I say hypocrisy? Because that's yeah. I mean, in my view, it, you know, there there is some sort of hypocr- hypocrisy to uh, what Vice does, and I don't have really any idea what they're doing, moving sort of into. TV with like Viceland when they have such a successful um, millennial outlet already on the internet. And then why would they start a nightly news show on HBO when they just released this Viceland channel? So, that being said, sort of to get more, I guess, of a background of what I'm talking about, you should check out this interview that I did with Matt Conboy, who directed the Death by Audio documentary, Goodnight Brooklyn. Um, I did that in April, and I think it sort of sets a good context for some of the ramifications that Vice's productions and Vice's explosion has had on the industry, the music industry in particular.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to do a celebratory news item just about how amazing Vice is because we all know that there's also lots of controversy around there. I mean, I mentioned how many people they employ, but they're also notorious for low wages and not necessarily treating all their producers the same, particularly the female ones that being said, they have worked really hard in recent years to um, up their credibility game, hiring very high-profile, very experienced people, and again, always keeping you know feet in the indie world. So, I definitely stand with everything I said at the top of this segment about how you know they employ a lot of filmmakers, they are started and run by filmmakers, and this show I think uh, is really as I said, going to provide a kind of refreshing alternative to the same, you know, news shit we see all day, every day on the other networks.
1: Yeah. So I guess you're asking the wrong person <laughs> uh, because I do have, I guess, sort of like a bias against, not a, it's a personal uh, like, opinion against Vice, but I, at the same time, totally understand what you're saying. And it, it's really helped A lot of people get their stuff seen, Um, no matter how allegedly unfair their wages are. It's letting people in the industry get a shot and experience at what they'd like to be doing. Um, I have a friend, Haley Gates, who has a TV show on Viceland, which is awesome, and she's a genius and for them to be able to recognize that and get her the exposure she deserves is fantastic on their part as long as they keep creating some new innovative content it's a uh, somewhat of a necessary evil i'd say yeah sure
0: one man's opinion folks yeah
1: and it's famous it's famous among my friends i have a friend who works at munchies and i'm always ragging him for working advice and uh but munchies is great too so good job pete
0: in other journalism-related news, screenwriter Mark Bull is battling the U.S. government over his First Amendment rights in relation to his current screenplay. If you don't know, Bull is the Academy Award-winning writer of The Hurt Locker and Zero Dark Thirty, both of which were directed by Catherine Bigelow. And he's currently working on a screenplay about Bo Bergdahl for another Catherine Bigelow film. As you also might know, Bergdahl is the U.S. Army soldier who's kind of at the heart of a controversial Platoon desertion case. So Boll, the screenwriter, conducted 25 hours of interviews with Bergdahl for the script, which is at the heart of this case because government prosecutors are trying to obtain the recordings and Boll is pursuing a lawsuit to stop that from happening. The suit has gained several prominent backers, including ABC, CNN, Fox News, NPR, NBC Universal and The Washington Post. And some of these groups are supporting him as part of the freedom of the press issue rather than just the freedom of speech issue. By the way, Bull himself commented about how, you know, important this issue is, noting When do Fox News and NPR ever actually agree on the same side of an issue? Um, Anyway, but the question I think most relevant to us as filmmakers is what constitutes journalism? So as a doc filmmaker, it's, it's more clear. But I'm wondering, you know, is a narrative screenwriter entitled to the same protections? Like if he's writing a fictional account of a real story, does he get freedom of the press? We'll be keeping our eye on it, and uh, I encourage you to do the same, because this this decision could definitely trickle down to those of you working on adaptations of real stories. It seems that Amazon and Netflix are having a contest to see who can spend more on original content, and that is nothing but good news for indie filmmakers. We've been covering what these two companies and other online distributors are doing regularly on this show, because... They've been basically breakout platforms for so many independent filmmakers, not just for films, but for original series that are being helmed by producers and directors who come from the indie world. Of course, this hits very close to home for us because No Film School's own founder and a co-host of this very show, Ryan Koo, is out shooting his film Amateur As We Speak, which is being financed by Netflix the company is reportedly spending $6 billion on content this year and has just announced that it will spend even more in 2017. So not to be outdone, Amazon announced on the same day last week that it will double its video budget for the second half of 2016. So the takeaway is get out there and start developing stuff, everybody. This is your time to pitch to Netflix and Amazon. There's loads of money out there and they need our work. As you probably know, the Summer Olympics are kicking off tomorrow in Rio, and in anticipation of their own Olympic Games in 2020, Japanese broadcaster NHK has begun broadcast tests with 8K footage. They're calling it super high vision, and the technology allows for live feeds to be sent via satellite in 4K and 8K resolutions with 22 two-channel sound. Of course, most people don't have 8K televisions yet, and Really, even 4K broadcasting isn't the norm. I mean, 8K televisions cost $130,000 and are about seven feet wide, so not like most of us are going to have them in our living rooms. But NHK is hosting these 8K tests at public locations in Tokyo and Osaka during the Rio Games, broadcasting a live stream of the opening ceremony.
1: Well, I know where I'll be on Friday. (laughs) Osaka, Japan. So yeah, like Liz was saying, the tech's not going to be available for us for a long time unless we're in Japan, but it's certainly coming down the pike. A couple weeks ago, we talked about RED's new weapon camera with the Helium 8K S35 sensor, the one that was not developed for Michael Bay, but that Michael Bay uh, is inspired. getting the chance to use. Mm-hmm. Apparently, it got into the hands of people that aren't just into it exploding things a lot. This past weekend, we posted some of the first public footage from the camera, and it's stunning, even compressed for the web. So go on No Film School and check out that article with some of the footage on it.
0: What else is up in gear news, John?
1: Well, scaling back down from 8K to 4K, there's a new Yi 4K action camera that's aiming to dethrone the GoPro hero 4 so this new yi action camera has almost identical specs to the gopro hero including its processor sensor and lens it also records 4k at up to 30 frames per second like the hero has an auto low light feature like the hero and has wi-fi like the hero at first glance it even looks like a hero and apparently it even sounds like a hero but it has a few beefed up features that aren't on the hero Like a built-in 2.19-inch retina touchscreen display, 120 minutes of battery life, a 3-axis accelerometer and 3-axis gyroscope, EIS, dual microphones, slow motion mode, lens distortion correction, and a tripod mount on the bottom. So yeah, the thing is more or less a complete knockoff of the GoPro Hero, but it costs half as much as the original. And it actually has a bunch of impressive features that the original doesn't have. So you can purchase the Yi Four K Action Cam on Amazon for two hundred and fifty bucks, and the bundle also includes a selfie stick and a Bluetooth remote. And they have a ton of other accessories apparently coming down the pipeline. So could be worth the investment.
0: I'd love to see the two go head to head. If any of you out there want to uh, try that and write a post for well, you know Film School, hit you know me up.
1: what? It's already been done and is in the post accompanying. Um, this podcast. So, Liz, you can check that post out and so can you, faithful audience listeners, and you can see some footage.
0: God, our site's awesome.
1: Oh, it's so good. And now we have some super fast lens news. Two new lenses that are now being called the world's fastest of their kind. First, the 12 millimeter ultra wide Laowa 12 millimeter with a f-stop of 2.8. Venus Optics have announced this new lens and it has some pretty impressive features. Not only is it the widest 2.8 f-stop lens on the market, it also boasts great image quality, portable size, and close to zero lens distortion. For a better idea of what close to zero lens distortion looks like, you can go on the article accompanying this podcast and check out some of the images that it takes. So it started on Kickstarter with a $10,000 goal, and it's already at $217,000 with 29 days to go.
0: Wow, talk about demand.
1: Yeah, so you can tell that this thing is pretty impressive. You can pre-order it now on that Kickstarter campaign, and if you move fast enough, you might even get it for less than its retail price of $950. But if you don't make it before the campaign ends, the lens will reach distributors and resellers this September. So that was the fastest 12mm lens in the world. But not to be undone, Nikon has unveiled the fastest 105mm lens in the world. It's called the AFS Nikkor. It's a medium telephoto prime lens and its long 105mm focal length allows users to shoot shallow depth of field to capture a beautiful gradual bokeh. The large 1.4 f-stop aperture is not only ideal for low light situations, but for control over focus as well. So this new super fast telephoto lens is going to be available in late August and you can pre-order it now on B&H for a hefty $2,200. And now for some grant news, the Redford Center grants have introduced a pilot program and the deadline for that is August 10th. It's in its first year and it supports feature-length film projects in early development that are focused on driving awareness, education, and tangible action on a variety of environmental topics. Five filmmaking teams are chosen to participate and each team receives a pretty awesome prize package including a $15,000 development grant to produce a written film treatment and a short proof-of-concept film over a three-month time frame, mentorship from issue experts and industry leaders, a GoPro Hero 4 black camera, not the 4K Yee camera film distribution as part of the redford center grants program series of shorts this is pretty cool a travel and lodging grant to attend a story development summit at the sundance mountain resort yes this is the robert redford center for grants basically and an opportunity to be considered for co-production with the redford center or receive an additional production grant
0: that's such an awesome prize package especially because it puts you in the circle with sundance
1: Oh, yeah, and I forgot to mention that it's free and it's open to everyone. So definitely worth the minimal effort required.
0: Yeah, we've made the point on here before that if these grant requirements are very specific, like in the case of the Redford Center, um, they have to be environmental films, then it kind of narrows the pool of applicants and makes your chances higher. The same is true with another. The same is true with another opportunity. The TFI ESPN Future Filmmaker Prize, whose applications are due on August 16th, this one awards grad students making story-driven films about athletics. Applicants have to be 18 years or older and registered students pursuing a graduate-level degree in media arts at one of the schools that's listed on the uh, TFI ESPN Future Filmmaker Prize website, which we'll link to in the post associated with this podcast. They're looking for basically short-form documentaries between 10 and 40 minutes about sports. Your submissions can either be at the advanced stages of development or already in production, and uh, foreign language docs are eligible but have to be subtitled and suitable for an American audience.
1: And now for some festival deadlines. We posted about this, and it's not a traditional festival, but it is still an exciting opportunity. It's the Audience Awards Real Pitch Challenge, and the Audience Awards can be sort of considered an online video contest platform mecca, meaning they just have a shit ton of contests for filmmakers to enter. Their latest contest is called the Real Pitch Challenge, and it invites filmmakers from around the globe to submit a pitch video of their film or web series. So you don't even have to have a script or a finished film. All you need is a pitch. So that means whether you're in pre-production, production, production, post-production, or distribution, you can submit your crowdfunding video. So the categories that you can submit to correspond exactly to the stages of development that you are in. After going through a preliminary screening process, you'll have to make it through a first round of votes, which are from online voters, which is where the festival aspect sort of takes place, and then three videos that receive the most online votes at the end of that round, your video will then advance to the next round where a jury of established filmmakers will select the winner so this contest distributes $25,000 in cash among the winners as well as two music licenses from Filmstro who we've posted about previously on the site they're basically the world's first soundtrack creation studio where you can build your own soundtrack or score for your film and the entry fee is only 20 bucks The Zero Film Festival has a deadline of August 9th. They're based in New York, and the festival runs from November 8th to 11th. This is actually a festival that takes place in many cities, but it's the only festival that's been exclusively designed for self-financed filmmakers. It's an independent, not-for-profit organization firmly committed to supporting underrepresented filmmakers and screening the world's best self-financed films for cinema lovers everywhere. There's an Audience Choice Award and a Grand Jury Award that get cash prizes. So if you self-finance your film, this is definitely something to look into. And finally, I thought this one was cool. Um, The Anchorage International Film Festival has its deadline on August 12th. I just found this interesting because I really want to go to Alaska. It takes place in the heart of Alaskan winter from December 2nd to 11th, so it's going to be dark. It was founded in 2001 in order to bring independent and international films to Anchorage and to showcase the quality independent films made in Alaska. Anchorage is as good a place as any in Alaska to show these films because half of the population of Alaska lives in Anchorage, so it's a good place to get noticed.
0: By Alaskans.
1: By Alaskans. And people who are attending. I would If I had a short, I would definitely submit to this. I, it sounds awesome. Um, several films receiving jury awards from it have gone on to win Academy Awards and awards at major film festivals. The main host venue is the 400-seat Beartooth Theater, which is a brew pub where moviegoers are able to drink and eat food while watching the films. The best film in each category, this is the coolest part, will be awarded an Alaska-native hand-carved walrus, usic which is petrified bone and a certificate of achievement. So you could put that bone up on your mantle and look at that bone all day. (laughs) Who doesn't want a walrus (laughs) bone? That's the question I have for you guys. I sure do. Carved with my name in it.
0: I had no idea there were any film festivals in Alaska. This is cool.
1: It's ultra cool. Very cold.
0: Cold. Freezing. (laughs) Moving on to our Ask No Film School segment. John Haas has asked us, I moved to Los Angeles. Now what? Of course, you're talking to a bunch of New Yorkers here, but he's uh, originally from a small town in the Midwest, and he just finished a film degree in Arizona. He's been making a living out there uh, for the last year as a freelance videographer, and he decided to take the plunge. So um, now he's understandably anxious and not sure how he's going to make it work. And um, I have to say that the, the folks on our boards came through with a lot of good answers for him. Um, there was there was a lot of good advice, and one of the posters kind of summed it up. And actually, these bullet points, I think, apply to just just about anybody who moves anywhere to try to get a film gig. It, it comes down to networking, at first getting a, f- a flexible job to pay the bills that also allows you t- to shoot or work on films in your free time. Um, Making short films where you're actually getting out there, getting creative, getting noticed, meeting people, working with crews, Um, working on other people's projects, of course, is the classic way to, um, you know, get your start in this business. And, of course, putting a solid reel and website together to promote yourself are huge. I would emphasize the networking part because, as we've also discussed on the show many times, this business is really all about relationships. Um, You can look at meetup.com for relevant groups. And um, also, John mentioned that he's interested in documentaries. So, John, you can get involved in um, the International Documentary Association, which is based out there. They have lots of events. Their website is documentary.org, easy to remember. You can go to events held by the AFI or Film Independent. And, of course, get yourself to the film festivals like L.A. Film Festival and other ones where filmmakers are hanging out. I just start talking to people, see who you can help, see who might want to collaborate.
1: Yeah, totally. It's it's interesting because I uh, did a sort of summary of Aaron Storkin's uh, Reddit AMA last week, and he talked about the differences between New York City and Los Angeles for uh, people in our industry. I mean, of course, he was talking from the perspective of a screenwriter, but why he said New York City was the better city was because there weren't a thousand other people just like him trying to do the same things as him. But I think that you can sort of use that to your advantage, as we were just saying, Um, you know, learn from the people that are also struggling to do what you're trying to do and make connections with them. I've done countless interviews where people are like, you know, you can't just, this is not, someone's not just going to come up to you and ask you to be like a DP or a director or help you with your film unless you're offering to help them with their stuff. So, you know, get out there and see, What people need help with, and offer your services no matter what they're asking for. And eventually it'll come back around to you. And that's sort of the filmmaker's karma, I
0: guess. 100%. Also, John, if you decide that um, you really, the documentaries are really where you want to go. You may want to consider coming to New York, not just because we want you here, but the documentary scene is is a little bit um, more robust here than it is in L.A., particularly because so many of the television networks um, are based here and not in L.A. But that being said, we wish you luck wherever you are.
1: Shit, man. Like, reach out to Vice. You know, we were just talking about it. Like, see what's going on there. They have a headquarters at Venice, so right? I think so. Venice, somewhere somewhere in LA, somewhere in some beach, I'm sure.
0: That's a good point. Vice is hiring like mad out on the West Coast too. And also YouTube has some LA offices and they are doing some original content as well. Good luck, John. Stay in touch.
1: Like your name. Here's some highlights uh, from the movies opening this week that aren't Suicide Squad, which is getting reamed for lack of a better term. Coffee and Cigarettes is now on Amazon Prime Instant, and if you haven't seen it, it's a really interesting series of vignettes that Jim Jarmusch uh, came out with, I think, in 2003. They all consist of celebrities playing a semi-fictionalized version of themselves, meeting in some kind of food service establishment where coffee and cigarettes are involved. So just to like make that more clear, these are celebrities... That are starring in these scenes where they play themselves. So some of these scenes include conversations between Bill Murray and the Wu Tang Clan, Tom Waits and Iggy Pop, and even Kate Blanchett and herself. It's a movie that every filmmaker should see.
0: I agree. This is such a Jarmusch classic, and it's sort of about LA and about the industry and about acting.
1: Mm-hmm. Coming out on Netflix, we were just talking about how they've been making a lot of acquisitions. One of their biggest acquisitions this year was an animated movie called The Little Prince. This is coming to Netflix on August 5th. It stars Jeff Bridges, Rachel McAdams, and Paul Rudd.
0: Who doesn't love Paul Rudd?
1: uh, That's that's the perennial question. It's directed by Mark Osborne, who directed *Kung Fu Panda*, the first one. As I said, they acquired it as an exclusive, um, and I think they're really going to try and make an Oscar push um, into the animated category with this. It's based off the classic children's book *Le Petit Prince*, which is French.
0: Merci, Jean.
1: Yep, that's Jean. I'm all I'm gonna say about that. <laughs> <laughs>
0: It's such a sweet book. I bet the movie is going to be really great.
1: Yeah, it's supposed to be very good and very beautifully animated. So might as well check it out if you've got Netflix.
0: We, oui. So theatrically, Miss Sharon Jones came out uh, on limited release last week. It's opening wider this week. It's a documentary directed by two-time Academy Award winner Barbara Koppel. I don't know if you've heard of the funk and soul band Sharon Jones and the Dab Kings, but they are... So great. And the the singer Sharon Jones is very charismatic. Um, This film actually follows her as she battles cancer and prepares to mount a comeback tour with the nine member band. It's worth supporting not only because of the awesome music and inspiring story, but because the film was actually dropped by VH1 during production. And Barbara Koppel was so committed to the story that she paid for it herself. So... I, for one, would love to see it do well and i have heard really good things. It premiered, I think, at Toronto last year.
1: Yeah, and she actually opened up. We have uh, something called Celebrate Brooklyn here every summer, and it's a concert series that goes on in Prospect Park, and she was the first performer to uh, headline the series this year. And speaking about New York-based collectives, I suppose, the movie Collective Unconscious, which uh, we've covered at great length this year.
0: We even did a podcast episode with the filmmakers.
1: We did, and the this po- that podcast episode can actually be found in the special features of their upcoming release, which somewhat unorthodoxly is happening on BitTorrent. They partnered with BitTorrent um, to release the film online for free, um, and it's coming out on August 9th. Concurrently, it also has a week-long theatrical run at Brooklyn's Made in NY Media Center by IFP starting this Friday. So if you live in Brooklyn, come check it out. It was at BAM um, a few months ago, or last month, as part of the uh, CinemaFest. Cinema Fest. Um, and it's it's I, I can't wait to see it.
0: Yeah, this is definitely an unorthodox release idea. And it doesn't surprise me because it's a very unorthodox movie. It's an, as we've talked about before, it's an omnibus film made by five up and coming indie directors and produced by Dan Schoenbrunn, who uh, used to work at Kickstarter. And it's a super weird, engaging, just fascinating film. It has all the emotions. It's funny. It's sad. It's strange. It's thought-provoking. And really, really interesting that that they're um, doing this release with BitTorrent. I'm curious to see if more filmmakers are going to do a sort of official release that way.
1: I'd also just like to mention that we did a podcast with Dan at uh, Sundance earlier this year, and that was one of the first things that I actually did for No Film School in my tenure here. Um, And it was... Really inspiring for me to hear um, this conversation between Ryan and Dan, um, sort of about the merits of crowdsourcing, crowdfunding. And uh, he seems like a great guy. And I think that the reason why they are doing this BitTorrent release is because they've always wanted this film to be seen for free. So check it out. I mean, it's being given to you. So do yourself a favor, watch it and listen to the podcast.
0: Again and again and again. Yes. Speaking of listening to the podcast, thank you so much for joining us this week. You can read about everything we've covered and more on NoFilmSchool.com and get the links to the grants and opportunities and films that we've mentioned on this show at the post associated with this podcast. Please, please subscribe and rate us on iTunes and stay in touch. You can find me on Twitter at LizFilm.
1: And you can find me at Twitter at jim underscore john underscore jim
0: jim jim jim
1: jim 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 jim
0: i'm going to the gym and of course you can find us at no film school yep thanks see you next week